Church, if you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and grab it for me. We're going to actually read what Brother Danny read in our call to worship in 2 Samuel chapter 22. While you're turning there, um, I did want to take this time to extend our uh, condolences to my brother Tom Pornovitz, uh, who lost his sister earlier this week, um, and um, she had been suffering for a while. He had got to, to see her. Um, and the good news is we know where she is. She was a believer, which means she's resting the Lord's arm, but we still, um, man, Tom and Vicki Pornovets, what they mean to First Baptist Church of Greg Gables, I think, uh, um, can't be put into words. And so you guys have been ministering and loving here for so long, and you're such a treasure to our hearts. And so when you hurt, we hurt. We're hurting with you, brother. We love you, and uh, we're praying for you and your family during this difficult time. Uh, Tom will be traveling up to Jersey, where he's from, sometime in the next month to attend the memorial service. Did y'all know Tom was from Jersey? I didn't know that. Um, Jersey boy over here. Do you sing like Frankie Valley? I'm not in the choir, am I? Oh, he's not in the choir. <laughs> All right. Okay, if you uh, would, again, Second Samuel, I'm just going to read the first four verses of the passage, and then we're going to take up the rest as we kind of move through it, more or less. We'll see how far we get. Um, and... Uh, um, as, as you know, if, you, if you're a guest here, we've been in 2 Samuel for over a year now. Um, we've learned much, hopefully. We're coming to a close. I actually think we're due for a bit of a break, so I am going to take a break next week. Um, and then after we're done with this series, what we're going to do until Christmas is just go to different books of the Bible and look at different passages each week. No uh, connection, no series, just a standalone sermon for about a month or two uh, to reward you for the fatigue you must be feeling going through this book week after week. And so 2 Samuel 22, verses 1 through 4, uh, here's the precious and errant and fallible word of God. It says, Then David spoke to the Lord the words of this song, On the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength, in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved. From my enemies. First Baptist Church of Gray Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank Him for His word this morning. Gracious Father, you are indeed a refuge, a shield, a rock, a deliverer for all those who find refuge in you. Lord, would you remind us this morning of our need? Father, would you help us to really hear and understand the provision that only you can provide. We ask this in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Actually, if you remember a couple weeks ago when we broke down the kind of chiastic structure of this epilogue of 2 Samuel... We were originally going to attempt to take up all of chapter 2 and the 22 and the beginning of chapter 23 together, um, but I do want to cover this more slowly, and you know me as I kind of dwell over God's Word and read this, I just think there's just no, we're just going to skip, we're already going to skip so much today, um, but there's just no way we can get through all of that, and so I want to do that for a reason though, I want us to see really uh, the, our greatest and, and most pressing threat we have against us. Um, And that's given to us actually in this song. And so towards that end, let's dive right in. What I want to do is kind of give you the big idea of the larger section, uh, this song and David's last words first. Um, And so I want to give you the big idea of that and then kind of the big idea of what we're going to cover today. You should have that in your outline in your bulletin. The big idea of the big section this morning is that the kingdom of God will be established through his anointed. The kingdom of God will be established through his anointed. We find this declaration, this this promise of a kingdom that will bring to the ends of the earth blessing. The kingdom of God will come through the Lord's anointed. We're not going to see that really necessarily this week very clearly um, as we will next week or the uh, the following weeks, Uh, but that is a big idea of this larger section. This morning, Our big idea that we're going to cover is that there is only one refuge, and his name is Jesus Christ. 
That is our big idea we're going to cover this morning. There is but one refuge, and his name is Jesus Christ. So let's take up the song, let's move through it and actually see that message from God's word. This is a song of salvation. Uh, In David's last words, he declares the Lord, who is his rock, his fortress, his deliverer, his God, his rock in whom he took refuge, his shield, the horn of his salvation, his stronghold, and his refuge, his Savior, the one who saved him from violence, the one who David called upon. He is worthy to be praised and who saved David from his enemies. This is the God who David proclaims in this song. And and David does this in various ways, but I do want to draw your attention immediately straight out of the gate before we look at that uh, to his use of two specific words in this song. And this isn't in your notes, but you may want to jot this down. Uh, The first is in the Hebrew, the word, the root word, which is yasha. Uh, It's used in in all kinds of different ways. It's Y-A-S-H-A, if you're spelling that in English. Uh, And it means salvation or deliverance. Could be savior, depending on the form that's used. He uses this word yasha over and over again. We actually see it in three three times in just verse 3 alone. So put your eyes on verse 3 of 2 Samuel 22 and look for it here. It says, the horn of my salvation... My Savior, you save me from violence. Those are all at the root word, this Hebrew word, yasha. It's important for us to keep in mind. It emphasizes this fundamental truth that the Lord is a Savior. Right? The Lord alone saves. That's what David is testifying to over and over again. And it is hopefully, without any argument whatsoever, what you believe. Right? It, it, It's why we're gathered here this morning, because we also have come to know the only true and living God, the one who alone saves. There's another word that's used throughout, though not very much here in the beginning of the section, as it is later. It becomes prevalent in the second half of this song, and it's the word Rock. I'm not going to try and pronounce the Hebrew there. Um, and plus, I would break my rule of only pronouncing one Hebrew word, or trying one Hebrew word per sermon. Uh, this is the word rock. This is used over and over again. And combined with this emphasis on the word salvation or deliverance, it, it clearly depicts the Lord as this utterly safe, trustworthy, completely dependable defense or source of protection For David and all who take refuge in him. So this song is meant to declare this truth. And it's meant to compel the people of God to praise him. You see that in the text itself. In verse 4, David writes, he says, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And then actually David goes on even throughout the rest of this entire song to continue to present all God's evidence of his worthiness. Right? Why God is worthy of praise. He actually concludes this entire song um, in verse 50 by saying, Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles, and sing praises to your name. So he's bringing the Gentiles in. He means to invite all of God's people to also take refuge in him and to sing his praises. And then in verse 51, he says, He is the tower of salvation to his King and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forevermore. And, and we would attest and agree that indeed God is worthy of all praise this morning. But now let's kind of back up and work our way through the song at the beginning and see a couple things that David declares here. The first is this David declares his dependence on the Lord. David declares his dependence on the Lord. That's what verses 1 through 4 kind of introduce for us. We looked at that word rock again. He is rock, fortress, deliverer, shield, horn of salvation, tower, or high secure place. He is refuge, savior. I mean, that's, that's quite a list of names, isn't it? All declaring the ability of God to deliver those who trust in him. These are not words of a man who is trusting in his own might. These are the words of a man who understands that not by might shall man prevail. 
And we do well to remember that we're, we're dealing with the epilogue here of the books of Samuel, first and second together. We considered last week how those books declare from beginning to end, not by might shall man prevail. It's how the book opens with the song of Hannah, and now it's reiterated here at the closing in David's song. That we should not, as a people, place our trust in weapons, swords, spears, horses, and chariots. Instead, our trust is fully upon the Lord. And so, without too much surprise, we find right here at the pinnacle of this epilogue, this crown jewel declaring that very truth. The antithesis of not by might shall man prevail is declared like this. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. I call upon the Lord, not the sword, spear, or numbers of men in my army. The Lord is the one who saves me from all my enemies. This just preaches itself. See, it's worth noting, I think, that this truth doesn't just show up in the books of Samuel. It shows up all throughout the scriptures. The Lord was a, a rock, refuge, and deliverer for Noah and his family when the Lord judged the world through a worldwide flood. The Lord was a rock, refuge, and deliverer for Rahab when the Israelites came like a flood in judgment against Jericho. More recently, David spent years in literal strongholds in the mountains in exile, hiding from Saul who was seeking to kill him. And, and the point's the same, whether it's Noah's ark or Rahab's house, not that, not either one of those, nor David's literal stronghold. Those were not the sources of deliverance. It was always the Lord Almighty. It has always been the Lord. Which really just leads us to a very straightforward, simple application right out of the gate, doesn't it? Have you taken refuge in the Lord? Have you? Like, I, I get this is one of those passages we can just say, like, yeah, the Lord's a deliverer, that's great. But we, we often just don't connect to that, like even emotionally or spiritually. Ask yourself, have you taken refuge in the Lord? I do not presume to know what your relationship with the Lord is like, but... But we do see clearly that the Lord is an utterly secure shield, stronghold, and refuge for those who take refuge in Him. Please don't miss this. David states that he, David, took refuge in the Lord. David was not wandering around trusting in swords and spears, and the Lord was just chasing him down, jumping on him, lifting up a rock, lifting him up just in the nick of time. David says, I took refuge in you. See, when we're faced with, with trials in our day-to-day -day life, we all seek refuge. Every single one of us. Some seek it in a bottle. Some in pills. Some in relationship with others. The acceptance or accolades of other people. Some of us just seek it in distractions. Refuge from the weariness of life. Friend, whatever your hope is, whatever your refuge is, it's going to be the thing that you will call out to in the day of calamity. We all do. In fact, David is calling out for refuge, and, and doing that, it actually stands in stark contrast to what his enemies do in verse 42. Look at verse 42 of 2 Samuel 22, and this is, this is speaking of David's enemies, and look at what it says. It says, they looked, but there was none to save. Even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. They looked for someone, but their God, their refuges, their weapons, and their might could not save them from the day of calamity. So, so listen, the call is, make the Lord your refuge now. Don't delay. Before your day of calamity, put all of your trust in Him. He will not be added to your pantheon of gods. He will not be put upon your shelf with everything else that you hope in, right next to your financial statements, your relationship with this person, your accolades, your strength, or might, whatever form those take. But if you make God alone your refuge, He will be your strength in the day of calamity. He alone can deliver you from all your enemies. So we see clearly David's dependence upon the Lord. Next, we see David declare his distress. David's distress is what's declared next. He explains his distress in verses 5 through 7 of chapter 22. 
He says this. He says, When the waves of death surround me, the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple and my cry entered his ears. Notice that that David's distress is communicated to us in what we would call flood-like language. Did you see that? David's situation is, is dire. He, was, he wasn't simply having a bad day. Like, he didn't just wake up on the wrong side of the bed or had a flat tire. David is having a, a really bad day. He's having a cast into the ocean, swallowed up by a whale type of day. David has one foot in the grave, knocking on death's door, and death was there to greet him kind of day. This is David's distress, and in his distress, he called out. And guys, as I wrestled with this this week, I couldn't help but think that we could all really use a healthy dose of working from the greater to the lesser. In our case, kind of from the lesser to the greater. And what I mean by that is, is likely the reality is for many here this morning is most of us aren't in danger of imminent death that we know of. I mean, we might be, who knows, some of us could, could pass at any moment, obviously. But, but the reality is not many of us are faced with it. Most of us, anyway, are probably not really and truly in the state of David, running for his life, which was his experience before the defeat of his enemies, as Saul was chasing him down. Anyone in here being hunting like a dog right now? Like, I don't think so. If we have no reason to fear death, now let's work to the lesser. Like, like if David says... In my distress, when I'm facing death, I have no reason to fear. Then why do we entertain so much anxiety over lesser things? Right? If this is to be our response when facing death, as, as crying out to the Lord and, and trusting Him, knowing He's a refuge, even from the jaws of death, I think He can handle your flat. <laughs> right? I, I mean, I don't mean he's going to fix it for you. He, he won't, he, not that he couldn't, but I digress. But if the Lord is a refuge from death itself, like if the Lord is a refuge from our last and greatest enemy, is he not a fortress for every other lesser trial? Yeah. So, I mean, think about it this way. I know when it comes to death, the Lord is my refuge, and I will stand firm. I know that. But you know, if my bank account disappears, or I lose my job, or I'm separated from the person I love, I, I don't know if the Lord can actually be my strength, my comfort, or my ever-present help in that time of need, in that situation. See, see the math there doesn't really add up, does it? Are we cura- courageous in the face of a lion and then scared of a house cat? If we've been delivered from the fear of death, then why in the world would we fear anything at all? Look at verse 7 again. David cried out to the Lord, and the Lord heard his voice. Don't miss that, by the way. That is what we call covenantal language. What I mean is, when you read that, do you think, oh, that's good, he heard David. And then you, you go back to what we read in verse 42. Do you remember that, the prayer of his enemies? And think, well... Well, the Lord must have been asleep for the enemies that he did not hear them. Or maybe he took out his his hearing aid. How do you interpret that? What does it mean for the Lord not to hear the cries of David's enemies? And what does it mean for him to hear the cry of David? It means that with David, he heard with favor. It means he heard David's cry and was compelled to help. See, our verse employs heard in the sense of graciously considered, favorably disposed towards. It has nothing to do with God's hearing, as though some things God can hear and other things He can't. After all, we, we know that every person ever created is going to give an account for every careless word precisely because the Lord has heard it all. But this hearing of the Lord here, it provides a, a contrast for the enemies of David. Who, who, when the tables were turned, had, had cried out and they were being consumed by David. Read it again in verse 42, in case you missed it the first time we looked. Think about what it says in verse 7 and chapter 22, where David says, He heard my voice from his temple, and my cry entered his ears. And he goes to verse 42, 
And he's talking about his enemies here. And he says, they looked, but there was none to save. Even to the Lord. But he did not answer them. He, he heard their cry. He did not answer their cry. Why? Because they were not in right covenantal relationship with the Lord. Or to put it this way, he knew them not. Notice, by the way, also when we read in verse 7 the mention of the temple, which is actually conveying a very similar thing. The Lord heard them from his temple. What's his temple? Remember that? The temple is God's dwelling place with his covenantal people. The fulfillment of the covenant is, as we know, the kingdom of God, God's people, and God's place under God's rule. That's new heavens and new earth language. It's the fulfillment of what had originally begun in Genesis 1 and 2. It's what was lost in Genesis 3. And it's what's promised in Genesis 3.15. And what the covenants secure by the way of promise until the arriving of the new covenant through Jesus Christ. It's what's already been initiated through the new creation. We are now God's people in God's place under God's rule. But but the point is God is present. The language of the temple, it's it's covenantal. It's favorable presence with his people. And the, the same principle applies to God's hearing. God hears everything, but he also hears some. God is present everywhere, but he's also present there. You have to understand that in strict covenantal terms. The nations cry out to their gods, but their gods do not hear and respond, and they cannot save. David calls out to Yahweh, who is enthroned in the midst of his people, and he hears their cry. In fact, Solomon actually makes this point in 1 Kings chapter 8 when he prays the prayer of dedication, which was in your your reading this week. It's in 1 Kings 8. I'll read verses 27 through 30. This is the dedication of the temple. Listen to what Solomon says. He says... But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God. And listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today. That your eyes may be open toward this temple night and day. Toward the place of which you said, my name shall be there. That you may hear the prayer which your servant makes towards this place. And may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear in heaven your dwelling place and when you hear, forgive. See what's depicted in Solomon's dedication is a right relationship with the Lord. The Lord hears his prayer. By the way, there's a lesson here for prayer in general. And if you're with us on Wednesday nights, you... Hopefully understand this by now. Do do you have any idea what an immense honor and privilege it is to be able to pray? Like like just think about verse 7 and verse 42. That God hears the prayers of his people and yet enemies cry out to the Lord and he does not answer them. It's something. Like if you're honest... You will admit that you take prayer for granted. I mean, the reality is anybody can just speak into the air, but, but it is only by way of unilateral covenant made from God with a people that opens up the door of heaven in such a way that our voices are heard in his very throne room and he answers. See, we, we just think that anyone can talk to God anytime and he hears. And yeah, there, there's a sense in which that's true. He does. He He does. He even hears the words of his enemies spoken from a God-hating heart. We should meditate on how before we sought the refuge of Christ, our cries were not heard in a covenantal way. For we cried out to things that were not there and were not able to save. But now, because of Christ, our Creator hears your cries. Your voice comes to his ears and he responds because he delights in you. And the more your mind is conformed to the Bible, that will absolutely blow your mind. 
Like, if that doesn't blow your mind that the creator of the universe, the one who spoke the very world into existence, hears your cry and answers them, then you either have a very low view of God or a way too high view of yourself. Like, it it should blow your mind that he hears the prayers of his people. Honestly, I I really, look, if you're just sitting there and you're thinking, well, of of course he hears. Why wouldn't he hear me? He's God, and and I'm special. If if you think that, you really don't understand the Bible, friend. Like, hear me, apart from Christ, you are a son or daughter of disobedience. You are, biblically speaking, an object of wrath. He holds you in derision. You think you're just going to waltz in his presence and say, Hey, by the way, God, my tire's flat, I need a change. That's not the God of the Bible. David introduces us to the God of the Bible, and he does so very clearly in this next section. David declares his dependence upon the Lord. He declares his distress upon the Lord. But then, get ready. David declares his defense as well. Look at David's defense. Start in verse 8. Let's just think about this in terms of... You sure you want to waltz into the Lord's presence? Or maybe those people who say that God's never angry. Verse 8. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew and he was seen upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness canopies around him, dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning bolts, and he vanquished them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were uncovered at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath breath of his nostrils. Listen, church family, if you've ever only known a God who could never be described like this, let me introduce you to the God of the Bible. This is who He is. He is a God of justice, and His justice against sin is wrathful. See, the Lord doesn't just hear David's cry. The Lord acts on David's behalf. And when He acts, all creation, the entire world, is moved. What a picture. What a God. Again, I, I pointed this out at the very beginning, but let me draw your attention to it again. This action is provoked by his anger. In fact, this section begins with God's anger and it ends with God's rebuke, and all of creation is moved by his wrath. This picture begs the question if this is who God is, If this is a picture of what God's wrath looks like, who will stand? (laughs) David's actually using apocalyptic language to point towards a day fixed in time when the Lord's going to come judge the living and the dead. Listen, I know this is probably not the best Sunday to tell you this, but I I don't really know if I'm a, a fire and brimstone preacher. I don't I don't think I am. Maybe we can take a poll later, who knows? But but guys, this is, this is what the Bible says. Get the picture here. When the, when the earth is reeling and rocking, where are you going to stand? You aren't standing before the Lord. You are laid flat. Well, well maybe you don't even try to stand. You, maybe you think, well, what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm just going to throw myself into the sea and I can hide there. But what happens according to our text? He says, the channels are opened up. You can't even hide at the bottom of the sea. The whole world is laid bare before the wrath of God. Interestingly enough, that just reminds me of Revelation chapter 6. Our Sunday school went through this not too long ago. And that last seal, the, the picture of the day of judgment. You know what happened to all the people who aren't in Christ? You know who they cry out to? The rocks. 
You know what they cry out to the rocks to do? Fall on us, please. Cover us so that we're not exposed to the blazing, glorious, righteous light of the Lord. Even the rocks can't hide them. They will be shaken loose and laid bare. David's already made this abundantly clear. There's only one refuge. There's only one shield from destruction. Only one horn of salvation. And just in case you missed it, his name is Yahweh in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New The only name under heaven by which anyone will be saved from that day. Jesus, the Messiah, the eternal Son of God, who took on our flesh to fulfill all righteousness through His obedience. Even to the obedience of going to the cross as our substitute. To perform an anointing sacrifice. This Jesus is the only name under heaven by which we may be saved. He's the only rock, the refuge. So, please, I implore you. Take refuge in Him this very day. And we see, for those who do, in the next section, that the Lord indeed delivers. David declares his dependence upon the Lord. He declares his distress. He declares his defense. But he also declares his deliverance. As is depicted in verses 17 through 20. I think somebody guessed that over here because they just said yes. I guess <laughs> playing guessing games with the outline. And if you've been a Baptist for a long time, you know it starts with a D. So I limited, eliminated quite a bit. Yeah. David's deliverance. We see that depicted in verses 17 through 20. And in those verses, here's what we read. He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me. For they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity. But the Lord was my support. He also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. This is actually the reversal of David's state back in in verses 5 and 6. Remember what happened there? It said that David was encompassed. He was terrified, assaulted, and entangled. but, But the Lord took and sent And drew him out from many waters. He rescued David from a strong enemy who hated him. And if you notice, there are actually two interdependent reasons given here for the Lord's salvation and David. The first here is David's enemy. His enemies were too strong for him. He needed a savior. David had a desperate need. And so that's the first reason given. He says in verse 18, he delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me. For they were too strong for me. The next reason is given in verse 20. And this probably struck you as we read this. He says, he also delivered me because he delighted in me. They were too strong and he delighted in me. Those are the reasons given for the Lord's deliverance. And again, friends, we're confronted with that covenantal structure of reality. In fact, if you read this week in Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 9 through 13... Listen to Moses' last words to the Israelites on the plains of Moab. This is what he says to the covenant people of God. Look at what he says in verse 9 of chapter 7. He says, Therefore, know that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. And He repays to those who hate Him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore you shall keep the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which I commanded you today to observe them. Then it shall come to pass because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them that the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the mercy which he swore to your fathers. And he will love you and bless you and multiply you. In other words, according to the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord keeps covenant with those who delight in Him. And He repays to their face those who hate Him. That's just the covenantal structure of all reality. To keep covenant with the Lord is to be in right relationship with Him. To break covenant with the Lord is to be at enmity with Him. To keep covenant with the Lord is to know His delight and His love. Those who loves Him, He loves. To break covenant with the Lord is to know His wrath. And listen, those terms, they don't just apply to Israel. 
These terms define every single human being. Every single one of us were actually born into a broken covenant. Into a covenant and a relationship of enmity with God. We all come into the world as actually God-haters, despising Him and His reign over our lives. Like, we might not like that. That might sound unfair to us. I don't know how it sounds. But the Bible teaches it, one. And two, the reality is it's really hard to deny, right? Like, honestly, can, can you say that you've ever run into anyone and you are just like, man, that person really does love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength every moment of every day? Ever? Man, that person really does love their neighbor more than themselves. Never have I seen them ever do a selfish thing in all their life. Like, you can just tell they sacrifice all the time. I mean, listen, the biblical explanation for what we see in ourselves and what we see in other people is the only legitimate, valid explanation that makes any sense at all, doesn't it? It's glory and garbage in one. (laughs) There's no other worldview that actually allows for both. Every worldview just tries to explain that part away. The Bible doesn't. It depicts people for who they really are. Glorious, made in the image of God and their creator, and then also horribly twisted and broken. And so the Lord delights in those who keep covenant. He repays to their face those who hate Him. You know, we... We tend to be grossly unbiblical when it comes to understanding and articulating God's relationship with humanity. Yes, we know God loves His creation. God loves His creatures as those whom He created in His image. But the Bible does not say that God delights in those who rebel against Him. The Bible actually clearly states that the The sons of disobedience are objects of wrath. That God's anger is actually directed toward them. I mean, let's just think about this logically for a second, right? If God delights in everyone, then everyone's delivered. That's it. Like, if we're using covenantal language, God saves those he delights in. If God delights in everyone, he saves everyone. Or maybe I can, I can bring it to you this way. At judgment, what do you think people are going to be suffering from? God's love? Ah, it's too much, Lord, your love. I can't handle it. It's painful for all eternity. Ow! No, it's God's wrath against not just sin abstractly, but sinners. We have an emaciated, anorexic gospel because we often proclaim an emaciated, anorexic God and because we're too scared to tell people that God holds them in derision. But that's what the Bible says. I don't love my neighbor by failing to tell them, right now you are at enmity with God under God's wrath. And listen, I get what the argument is, right? Because we, we don't want to go full Westboro as we say, Right? We don't want to do that. And yet I'm afraid, I'm afraid if we do not share the fullness of the gospel with the people around us, they're tempted to think that God winks at their sin. It's the very reason he sent his son. It's a slap in the face of the gospel to say that God does not care about your sin. And what we create when we do that is people who think they can add on God to every other refuge they ever created and not have to have a heart that's changed. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, yes, God does have a covenant love with his people. But when you enter into that in time and space, you are forgiven of that sin. But that sin did not go unpaid for. He bore his righteous wrath against it on his son. We are missing essential, important elements of the gospel when we do not declare that he's wrathful against sin. People need to know that they stand rightly condemned. Times of ignorance, they're past. He calls people to repent because he's fixed today when he's going to judge the world and he's given us proof by the resurrection of his son. The son who he's appointed to come as judge. He came first again to deal with the sin of his people. He will come a second time to deal with those who continue in their rebellion. 
People need to hear that, friends. Why? Because there's a real day that's really coming. And and here's what I think the problem is for us. I'm not sure we believe it. The world has to know they stand condemned rightly and justly so. Revelation chapter 6. You know whose wrath is coming upon the world when those people say, let the rocks fall on us? It's the Lamb's wrath. Did you even know that Jesus has wrath? Honestly, I promise, I'm not trying to darken anyone's day. I, I assure you, it's actually quite the opposite. You, you want to know why the Old Testament's so long? It, it's just because we're so dense. I'm going to be honest with you. Like... Like, really, we have a hard time understanding that God really is holy. That he is not like us. That he's completely other than us. That he stands apart from everything else and is in himself morally pure, perfect in all of his ways. He does nothing wrong. Do you think he will just wink at sin? Just sweep it under the rug? No. He will deal with it in his wrath. And that day is quickly approaching. The question is, how will you stand? You think you're going to stand by being a little bit better than your neighbor? You think you're going to stand by attending church regularly? You think you're even going to stand by reading your Bible every morning? None of those things are bad things. But we have to understand there is but one rock, one refuge, one deliverer. One shield that goes by one name, it's Jesus Christ. If he's your savior, then he's your king. That's the way it works. You've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the king of God's beloved son. I want the saints to hear this and say, praise God. See, this this doesn't leave room for any kind of self-righteousness, does it? Because in my own, I have not earned or deserved anything in this life but the wrath of God. And yet because of the love of a Savior, I've been granted eternal life and grace. Washed clean of my sin because of the finished work of the Messiah, Jesus. How can we not say praise God? I'm going to stand on the day of judgment But it's not going to be because of any of my good works. It's simply going to be because my Savior lives. However, as much as I want the saints to hear this and say praise be to God, I want anyone who doesn't know Christ this morning to tremble. Because you ought to. I want you to to cry to the Lord and I want you to know that His mercy is more. He will graciously receive you as his son and daughter. You need only acknowledge your sin and cry out in Christ. I want to close with with a couple verses here that just cause us to rejoice in this truth. Hebrews chapter 9, starting verse 24, says this, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Why did he have to appear in the presence of God for us? Because you ain't standing in his presence. Not that he should offer himself often as a high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once... At the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. And As I left off on that this week, I just thought, salvation from what though? He's going to appear for salvation, but what do I need to be saved from? You remember 1 Thessalonians? We got a good like 60 to 70 sermons on our website from 1 Thessalonians. Maybe that's, a, I, what, maybe that's an overreach. I actually probably think that's accurate, unfortunately. Um, but, no, fortunately, I have to take that back. But remember 1 Thessalonians 1 verses 9 through 10. 
For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. What are we being saved from? What are we being delivered from? Even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let me, let me tell you one more thing about this, including the wrath in your evangelism. No one wants to hear that message. Like, like your lost family members don't want to hear that message. They want to hear that God is okay with them just the way they are. In fact, they will tell you what you want to hear if you'll let them. But church family, if, if we love people, we cannot cease in calling every man, woman, and child to repent while there's still time, to cry out to the Lord, because yes, He is merciful and gracious and faithful to save. There's no other name under heaven by which anyone, anywhere, ever will be saved other than Jesus Christ. But remember what they're being saved from. The wrath of God is upon them because they are at enmity with Him. They need to know and they need to hear that. In love, yes, But love ought to never waver from the truth. And the truth ought never to be expressed in anything but love. This is the message of the word. There is but one refuge. Jesus Christ. Is he your refuge this morning? I pray that he is. Would you stand with me as we close? Gracious Father. Lord, who are we that you would send your Son, in whom you delight, to bear the sins of your enemies, so that we might be adopted into your family? Would you help us, um, Father, to be a people who rejoice in the salvation that is ours, holding fast to the confidence we have that on the day he returns, he indeed will save us from the wrath to come? Father, would you stir up in us a greater love for those whom you've put in our sphere of influence to warn them of that day that is quickly approaching, to call them to repentance while there's still time, to point them to the only refuge in which and through whom they will be delivered from that day. We ask for boldness. We ask for grace. We ask for protection that we would display any form or sort of a righteousness of self, but instead would be gracious and commendable in our speech and our actions to display humility and the righteousness of Christ. We ask this in the precious name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. As we come to the time of our invitation to close our service, um, let me just encourage you something that was very helpful for me this week. Wrestling with that text, um, read 2 Samuel 22, verses 9 through 16, every day this week. And and when you do, do two things. First, uh, think about, as you read that text, what you've been delivered from, and praise the Lord for it. Second, and this this was difficult this week, think of those in your life that you know who don't yet know the Lord. And get motivated to share Christ with them. If you love them at all, you read verses 9 through 16 of that text, you're going to want to share Christ. Do that for me this week. If you're a church member, obviously there's a lot of application for us as the church. We have attempted every single day to put our refuge strength to make our hope anything but Jesus Christ. But it's why we need the church to remind us there is but one. Everything else that the world offers you to make your refuge will not stand in the day of calamity. But Christ has already bore the wrath of God for you. And not only is he sitting down at the right hand of the Father, but he defeated death in the grave by busting up out of that grave.
celebrate that. Thank God for that. If you're not a Christian this morning, just please hear what was spoken from God's word. You, as of now, if you have not put your full and final refuge in Jesus Christ, you stand under the wrath of a holy and just God because of your sin. And if there is no one to pay the debt that you owe in your sin, then you will pay it. And you will not stand. You will suffer the wrath of God for all eternity. And the reason I tell you that is because I love you. And as was once someone like me, standing under God's wrath, until I heard that this same God, out of his love for his people, sent his son Jesus to bear that very wrath for me. And if I would repent of my sins, turn away from them, and place all of my hope in the finished work of our refuge, Jesus, then I can know eternal life. And I can live for Him. Not perfectly, but live with hope in Him, knowing that there will be a day where I'll be cleansed fully and finally from sin and its effects. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord, please do not leave this place without knowing you have a right covenantal relationship with Him. Pastor Justin will be down front this morning. Brother Danny will be down here as well. Bob's right there. He loves Jesus. Would love to share Jesus, Jesus with somebody today. There's plenty about here. I guarantee you. Ask, I, I guarantee you talked about five people that are around you. At least one of them feels comfortable telling you about Christ. Do not leave this place today without coming forward and making sure you have a right, right relationship with God. We do our invitation a little bit differently. We do it after the service because we don't want to be hindered by any chorus length or time. We will be here all day if that's what it takes to tell you about Christ. I'll be at the back of our sanctuary to encourage and welcome you. And thank you so much for coming. Um, friends, this is a tough week, <laughs> and yet his word is always worthy of being proclaimed.